Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. Today, we're talking about a subject of some intrigue and mystery that has figured on the edges of the Trump development since 2016, but has bedeviled the United States long before that, namely Russian organized crime. And to do so, we have a terrific group of uh, journalists and prosecutors, starting with David Hickton. He is the founding director of the University of Pittsburgh Institute for Cyber Law, Policy, and Security. Uh, Before that, he was the United States Attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania from 2009 to 2017, and he made that office a model of national impact, which I say with admiration and some envy because it's the uh, office that I previously held. But he brought many landmark cutting-edge cases against uh, Chinese actors for economic espionage and more to the point here, the Bogachev case. Uh, which was and remains the leading Russian cyber criminal case. Dave, thanks very much for coming. Thank you, Harry. I'm happy to be here. Um, Second, very pleased to welcome back to Talking Feds, a familiar uh, face, uh, Martha Bursch, the founding, a founding partner of the law firm Bursch and Olofsky, but she was uh, an assistant U.S. attorney in the Northern District of California, including under Robert Mueller. You may remember her participation in our show about that. Um, and she held many supervisory positions. She was had the first um, important Russian organized crime case I'm aware of, the, the Lazarenko uh, extortion case brought in 2000 and tried, actually, in 2004. She was also um, detailed to Moscow for a stint in the Office of International Affairs. Can you tell us, Martha, what was that about and why you were selected? So the um, Department of Justice has uh, people in various embassies around the world, um, what they call resident legal advisors, which are people who work with the local law enforcement authorities to coordinate um, law enforcement on international or transnational matters. So I was sent there uh, in the summer of 2000. I had um, an undergraduate degree in Russian, so spoke and read some Russian. I was sent there to work with the local Russian law enforcement authorities to try to coordinate um, operational issues generally uh, that arose between the two countries on law enforcement matters. Um, Finally, uh, we're joined from across the pond by um, Heidi Blake, who is the global investigations editor for BuzzFeed News and based in London. Heidi is a multi-award winning investigative journalist. She was assistant editor of the Sunday Times uh, and before she became BuzzFeed's uh, UK investigations editor. Uh, But she's about to come out with a a book that she's uh, given us the opportunity to see in advance called fantastic title. I don't know if you, if this is yours, Heidi, From Russia with Blood. And it's a really riveting, well, well, give us in a, in a, a word or two the, what the topic of From Russia with Blood is. 
Thanks so much, Harry. Well, I, I have to give full credit to my brilliant colleague, Ariel Kamener, for coming up with that excellent title, which was the, the title of the original series of stories we published in, on BuzzFeed News back in uh, 2017. And, and it's, it's, we, had to, we had to keep it for the book because it can't be bettered. Um, but the, the, um, the original investigation and, and the book is, uh, looks at a series of suspicious deaths um, in Britain and, and one in the US, um, which, which bear clear links to Russia. Um, all of which the authorities, uh, you know, the local authorities in, in Britain and, and then in the US treated as unsuspicious. Um, they shut down any investigation, but, but our series uncovered glaring evidence pointing to, to either the involvement of Russian mafia groups um, or the security services. Um, and we, we found intelligence in the case of the 14 deaths we uncovered in Britain. There was intelligence um, that had been passed from the U.S. intelligence community to MI6 in Britain, which clearly indicated that there, were, there was a suspicion that those deaths were assassinations carried out um, by, by the Russian state or its organized crime complex. Um, oh. And so the, the book really unravels that, that chain of assassination and also places it in the context of a much wider campaign of Kremlin-sanctioned killing around the world. Wow. So let me follow up. You use the term the Russian state and its organized crime complex. So there is a organized crime complex aspect of the Russian state as you see it? That's right. I mean, you know, in, in, in many ways, um, the, the mafia groups and organized crime networks um, emanating from Russia are, are an outgrowth of the Russian state, um, you know, in, in, um, in today's world. You know, in, I think after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, there was a, a real mushrooming of Russian mafia activity. Um, you know, the, the Russian mafia had really controlled all private enterprise um, in the country during during the 70 years of, of Soviet rule um, because because private enterprise was outlawed. And so, you know, you had to be a criminal to pursue any kind of um you know, any kind of private business opportunity. And that meant that when the Soviet Union fell um, and the country moved towards capitalism, that, you know, the mafia groups were in pole position to forge ahead and buy up huge swathes of the country's, um, you know, uh, oil and aluminium and mineral concerns and just became deeply enmeshed with the country's, um, you know, business world, but also deeply enmeshed with its government, its security services, its law enforcement agencies. Um, and, and, Putin, in particular, has really come in and weaponized the organized, you know, the organized crime complex um, in Russia, and and has has sort of quite proactively um, used the spread of those organized crime groups and the, the black money conduits that they run all around the world um, to you know to to disseminate financing for far right groups and for all kinds of nefarious activities as part of his general campaign of subversion against the West, but also you know, using it as an enforcement network to go after his enemies abroad. Um, and so, yes, I would say that there really is, you know, trying, trying to differentiate between, between the Russian government and the, its organized crime networks is really a distinction without difference. Wow. Well, there's, so there's quite a lot in there. And that's, I mean, that's one of the features that led us to want to talk about this topic when when we think organized crime here if we think about a classic you know cosa nostra situation there are certain rituals people know about certain kinds of crimes you know certain scenes of of uh memorialized in movies and the like same with others but uh russian organized crime in part because of its um intertwinement with the government is more a matter of mystery let me start 
here. So the New York Times today reports, as as Dave pointed out to me, there a uh, an investigation of a daylight assassination of a former Chechen separatist uh, in in Germany. He was gunned down uh, by a man in a wig. Uh, they they find they arrested the the uh, suspect. His wig gone. His clothes changed. His beard shaved off, and a Russian passport in his pocket. Uh, you three who know about Russian organized crime in a way we don't, do your do your does your spider sense go off like crazy? Do you understand this to be certainly uh, involving Russian organized crime as opposed to a stray crazy Russian? What are the sort of calling cards of cr- not just criminal activity by Russians, but Russia organized crime activity? Martha, do you have a, a, a sense of this? So I, I guess the real question in my mind is, I mean, it's clearly in my mind Russian organized crime related. The question is, is it also government related? Is it is it part of what Heidi pointed out in her book uh, with regard to the murders in the UK? Are, it was this state-sponsored killing uh, in which the Russian government or Putin is using Russian organized crime to accomplish his ends. Um, so not all organized crime, you would say, is an, is ancillary to government function. Some, I think some. I think the problem, and from a law enforcement perspective, the problem with Russian organized crime is how deeply enmeshed it is in business and in government, and how hard it is sometimes to distinguish them. There is there are traditional Russian organized crime gangs. Um, you know the Vor or the Vori, which is Russian for thief. Um, long established in Russia from Tsarist times. Uh, they have tattoos like gang members here. They have customs like gang members here. Um, so there is a sort of... Uh, About how many organizations like that are there in Russia? Any idea? Oh, I don't have any idea. I mean, there's some major ones like the Izmailovsky and the Solnsovskaya and some other ones. Um, so there's that aspect, and, and that's what Heidi was talking about when she talked about them controlling the black market back in the Soviet days. But with the fall of the Soviet Union and and the transition to capitalism, the lines between that traditional organized crime group uh, sort of structure and business and government has gotten very blurred. Um, and I think both businesses and the government have come to rely on sort of traditional organized crime members in order to accomplish whatever their agendas are. Um, so from my point is from a well, law so enforcement give me an example of an agenda, for, a government agenda that let's turn to well, let's, Luca let's, Brasi here. Let's just talk about some of the murders in Heidi's book, for instance, the Skripal murder. So Skripal was viewed by Putin as a traitor. And so, you know, there's an, an agenda there by the government. To, Putin gave the order. You have no doubt. I I have no Heidi, idea. Heidi, you have no doubt. Oh, okay. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. But that is that is one uh, uh, supposition, right? Um so there's that. The other, from a business perspective, you know, it, the tr- transition to capitalism and the fall of the Soviet Union was marked by, you know, these huge um, asset transfers, often by force uh, or by extortion. Um, and so business people would have to rely on sort of more traditional criminal elements in order to accomplish whatever their business objectives were. So, Dave, as, as you started as the Bogachev case began to uh, be on the radar screen of you and your office. Was it the case that there was clear government entanglement? Did this feature that that Heidi and Martha are um, discussing of of the almost um, unholy partnership between government and organized crime, 
did it figure in that case? It, it wasn't clear at first, but it became very clear later. The digital platforms accelerated the opportunity for criminal networks, be they individuals or nation states. And what we were trying to do in Pittsburgh was identify threats, but also expose the signature of our adversaries, which are primarily China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. The Russian signature in cyberspace is identical to the Russian signature in other organized crime. And that is they deny attribution by having this blurred line between the criminal network and the state. They, the government, the deny government attribution. Does, yeah. So as the Bogachev case went on, it became more and more apparent that Bogachev was not only a criminal, but he was a hybrid agent of Russia. And in fact, it later developed that his crime network became used to be advancing attacks on Ukrainian defenses during the invasion in 2014. Wow. Um, and just, uh, was all this, uh, you know, the investigation and the ways this was becoming apparent? By the way, so the investigation here is all done online, I assume, right? No, there's no, there's no boots on the ground. So, so, so are you coordinating in some way with the CIA, with the, if you're allowed to say, with the State Department? How do you go about just investigating a case like this in the first place that has such uh, implications for intergovernmental relations? Well, there's a line between an intelligence investigation and a criminal investigation. And I was doing a criminal investigation. And what was being done on the other side, I can't really talk about. But what I can say is we had cooperations with cooperation with other countries. And when we started the case, we didn't even know who Bogachev was by his online moniker. By the time the case was over, we had been able to trace it back through a Russian IP address directly to him. And what we exposed was a, a network known as the Business Club, which was effectively a clubhouse of cyber criminals that he had put in there by invitation. And they were avoiding conflicting with each other by having this club, but also they were accelerating their crime network, which had gone from a Zeus malware product, which had centralized command and control, which was easy to decapitate, to a peer-to-peer -peer network, which proliferated like poison ivy. When you severed one link, it actually propagated. And so it was a very ingenious a crime network that had stolen as much money as you can count. But what we also learned was that the Russian signature was instead of having a unit to do cybercrime for state purposes like China did, Unit 61398, which we also took down, the Russian crime network put Putin in the position that he could go on television interviews and say, these are individuals, they may be patriots, we have no control over them. And to the question you asked to Martha, people often ask me, do I know if Putin was making direction of these activities? I don't. But the supposition is that these individuals were state agents just as if they were wearing uniforms. I mean, it's, this is, it's very impressive how technologically sophisticated uh, the, the, the network was because I, I've worked organized crime cases, but it was in the sort of, you would know about this, Dave, in the latter days, the, the almost embers of traditional organized uh, crime in, say, Pennsylvania. And I always found it to be much more, um, as I've said, married to the mob than Goodfellas, like, like you know, wise guys who were, were by no means 
cutting edge in uh, technology. But this is the kind of stuff, the 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 signatures, the um, the pledges, et cetera. You know, Martha, you talked about this in Zara's times. Heidi, do you have uh, you know a sense of the kinds of oh, colorful details that fascinate uh, people with respect to say the uh, Sicilian organized crime families as they apply here to the, the the wise guys, if I can use that term, in Russia. You know, what are they like? What do they do? Do they have clubhouses? Or you know, how big are their groups? You know, what what what's the what's the week like inside their world? I think um, you know the the sort of some of the the hallmarks of of Russian organized crime. Um, are you know the, the level of sophistication um, of the, the the way in which these groups are organised and structured, and they have a kind of almost military style chain of command. Um, and there are there are thousands of these groups, you know, within Russia, and hundreds of them that have their tentacles, you know, internationally, you know, have, have kind of international really? operations. And are they competitive one with the other? They are. There's a lot of there's a lot of factionalism and rivalry. Um, but you know, within the organized crime world, there are also kind of key figures who are seen as kind of arbiters of disputes that may arise between the various warring factions and, and groups. You know, one of the one of the things that was um, that was difficult and perplexing for the British um, security and intelligence services and for the, the counter terror officers who were tasked with protecting some of the oligarchs living in Britain from the long arm of these Russian mafia groups and the Russian security services when, you know, when, when say, Boris Berezovsky, a very controversial oligarch, he was financing campaigns of political opposition to the Kremlin from his new home in, in the UK, was coming under repeated, you know, threat of assassination. And there was there was intelligence of multiple assassination plots against him. And the difficulty was um, that, you know, that that the security state and the organized crime complex of Russia had grown into such a kind of multi-headed hydra under Putin that it was impossible to tell which of the competing factions within the FSB, the mafia, the various different mafia groups, the country's military intelligence agency, you know, they were all competing to try and go after Berezovsky. And it was hard to tell from where the threat emanated, which of them, you know, was behind any particular plot and how could it be averted and that's because there's there's such competition within these different groups but you know let's not talk just about can, can, let me just follow up with a question to, to mm. anybody but starting with Heidi about the structure within a fairly established group so you described a kind of militaristic again by comparison to Cosa Nostra you think of like a, a rich social life with certain uh, ethics and and pastimes a great sense of pride to be a made guy what you've described in these organizations sounds, among other things, a lot less fun. You also use the term oligarchs, which comes up a lot when you're talking about Russian organized crime. Actually, so what specifically do we mean when we say oligarchs uh, in context of this problem? Martha, do you, you have a sense of that? What? Well, what um, uh, I can't remember the dictionary definition of the term, but but in my mind, the oligarchs are again when the Soviet Union fell apart and there was this massive asset grab um, with former KGB guys, you know, sort of in the lead on a lot of that. There's this, and by these are assets of the former state, yeah, like oil huge, and gas, huge, and, yeah. hugely valuable assets selling for pennies on the dollar, right. um, selling in a kind of extorted, fraudulent in, way. In the or? auctions, they, they they had auctions, and much of it was fraudulent, much of it was um, extortionate. Um, Let's say I went and tried to bid. Would my knees have gotten broken at the time? 
Uh, you could have tried. I mean, a, a great book to read, uh, another one besides the one that, that Heidi's got coming out, is um, Bill Browder's book, um, right. uh, Red Notice, which is a, 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 a really interesting story of what happened when the Soviet Union fell apart. But the oligarchs were the people, you know, of, of 20, 30 of them who ended up with the majority of the formerly state assets, hugely, hugely wealthy individuals with a lot of power um, as long as they do not cross Putin. And Heidi or Dave, if you know, does each of them kind of, is each of them the head of a separate organization of the thousand that you mentioned? I was a student of uh, European politics in college and I taught antitrust for 12 years and I used to teach the Russian oligarchs to demonstrate concentrations of power to my law students. And uh, the Bill Browder book is the best reference I could cite as well. But yeah, they, they own sectors. They, they did conduct themselves like uh, American mobsters, where they would extort, uh, get protection, give protection. Uh, to whom? So who, who, who were they who wanting want, to shake Anyone them? who would want to go into their sector. So you could not, you know, they were the, the dons, effectively, of the aluminum industry, the titanium industry. And, oh, and I could set up a titanium company as long depends. as I paid. It depends. Uh, it depends, yeah. And, and, and this is what happens when the Soviet Union broke up and you had privatization and uh, they had a lawless uh, legal system. It's a rogue state across the board. So, wow. So if the, if the devolution of the Soviet Union had just been more orderly and according to law, the organized crime problem would be hugely different today. Is that, is that fair I think, to say? I, I think that's a little maybe simplistic. But the problem was when the Soviet Union fell apart, partly the problem was they had 70 years of this authoritarian communist regime. They, they had no real history of uh, civic institutions. They had no real legal system uh, at all. Mm. Um, you know, it had been the uh, rule by the Tsars before that. So there, there was no culture like we're familiar with, with civic uh, domestic institutions, with uh, laws that people abided by and governed. There was none of that. And so when the Soviet Union fell and, and, and that power structure fell apart, there was a huge vacuum and nothing to take its place other than the oligarchs and the um, former state security people and the organized crime elements. I see. So, so Heidi, that, so this is how they initially made, uh, as Dave says, more money than you can count. Today, you know, we, we think again, by analogy to other groups of, of um, protection money, maybe drugs, maybe gambling. What's the day-to-day -day business that keeps the coffers full of these organized crime groups? Um, I mean, they're... they're they have a diverse line of business for sure so i mean you know that they are heavily into drug dealing sex trafficking contract killings racketeering is a huge part of the russian organized crime model you know that this concept of of krisha which means kind of protection or literally roof that you that all businesses are expected to pay you know dividends to the mob in order just to be allowed to stay in business without having their you know without having their their legs done or their their businesses burned down or um, whatever other threats and menaces are forthcoming. Um, money laundering is a, a huge speciality of the Russian mob. You know, the development of these extremely sophisticated dark money channels all around the globe to um, to, to launder the proceeds of their crimes, which, which is part of what makes these cases so hard to pin down and so hard to prosecute. Um, and so, so yeah, it's it's a, a wide range of um, 
of criminal activities. Plus, of course, you know, because because the Russian organized crime groups are so deeply enmeshed with the business world, they are deeply involved with legitimate businesses too, you know, with with the running of, of major um, companies they you know where they have they have major investments in in the stock market um you know and that so their their tentacles are just very very deeply entwined in pretty much in sort of all aspects of um of business of industry of finance um as well as this raft of criminal activities got it well so so now let's bring it home um uh, dave maybe the bogachev case is a good illustration of this all right so they are worldwide but in to, in what respect do they, as a general matter, uh, engage United States interests? Why is it a, a priority, as I believe it's becoming, to really be on top of it? There are, you know, there are criminal groups, organized criminal groups in other countries that we don't focus a lot of investigative uh, resources on, but here we do, we're worried about it. So from the United States point of view, what are the threats that the the organized crime system that you've described um, uh, portend? Well, particularly with the advent of the digital platform, we now live in a borderless legal environment. And, you know, the tricky thing is if you had to capture what I was trying to do in cyberspace as I was trying to apply law to digital space so that Americans, which were the targets because we were the richest country in the world of most cyber crime, would not be at a disadvantage that we wouldn't prosecute Americans for doing things that we would let people from outside America who were feasting in our markets get away with. And when you talk about Russia and the spectrum of rogue lawlessness that they were engaged in, you may remember at the time when Russia began to fall, that American and Western businessmen and women were being assaulted in their hotel rooms because there was a black market for Levi's. And that small, you know, by comparison to government corruption, giving people stakes in oil and natural gas in, in, in exchange for payments to government officials is the spectrum of corruption you're talking about. When we in the United States, at least I hope this is still true, talk about applying law, it's to protect people and to treat people equally. In many places, like Russia, the application of the law is an authoritarian regime that rules by power and fear. And so as we apply law to digital space, that's why it's so important that we establish international norms. It's still the case that stealing and extortion are generally illegal everywhere, but it's going on. And when it happens from outside our borders, the challenge, and you know, Martha's one of the great pioneers in DOJ history of prosecuting a foreign national, actually putting them in prison. I've prosecuted people, but we're still looking for them. Right. Bogachev, for example, six months after I announced the case in Washington, I went back to Washington to announce the largest reward ever, $3 million that the State Department was putting on a cyber criminal. And twice I bought a new tie because I thought we had him. <laughs> um, I think it's the surest proof that he's being protected by the Russian government that someone hasn't claimed that reward because he's open and obviously living on a boat in Sochi. But he's being protected. Right. All right. So so here we have a very obvious U.S. interest. But basically, if I understood Dave, right? It's the same kind of reason you'd be worried about, ex you know, big extortion networks here. You know, thousands of individual U.S. victims. 
Um, I assume, though, there's also, when we talk about U.S. interests being engaged by Russian organized crime, sort of broader geopolitical concerns. Is that, would you, is, is that um, fair, Martha? Well, I mean, I think the, 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 the problem with the, the Russian organized crime is what we've been talking about, which is that it is completely intermeshed with government and business. And so from, from a U.S. perspective and a U.S. security and law enforcement perspective, it's much harder to deal with. And in my view, it's much more threatening because we have foreign relations. We have to have a relationship with the Russian government. We have uh, economical relationships with uh, Russian businesses. We we have to have that. So we're necessarily getting involved with and and um, touching on those sort of organized crime elements, which are much more difficult to kind of separate out or weed out when you're talking about uh, Russia. So, and just look at, you know, on the cyber front, um, the threat to our democracy, the, the elections, um, because of the Russians, and they are extremely talented cyber criminals. Uh, so from my perspective, it's one of the biggest threats to our national security that exists, I think, uh, in a way bigger than China. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, after 9-11, when all the FBI's resources were shifted over to um, looking for jihadists, I think there's very few people anymore who, in the law enforcement community, who speak Russian or, or know Russia uh, well. And uh, I think that's something, if I were head of the FBI, that would be some area that I would be beefing up uh, for the future. Heidi, does that sound like uh, also the situation in the in the UK and to the extent you know other sort of uh, Western uh, nations? Uh, do you, are, you know, is that the nature of the threat? And do you, as we've begun to do here, bring bring cases even knowing that the defendants may well never uh, be caught? I mean, I think I think what, what David and Martha have said is absolutely right. Um, you know, that the, the Russian organized crime is a huge national security concern because of the way that it's been weaponized by Putin, along with, you know, Russia's fearsome cyber capabilities and its its troll farms and its fake news farms. And it's, you know, the, the, these black money channels that are being used to finance extremism around the world. All of the, you know, the, the full spectrum of capabilities of the Russian state are being used in this this concerted campaign to destabilize the west and the the norms and the institutions of the rules-based liberal world order and you know that that is a is a major threat is it so by the way so i mean we are we often associate some of the trumpian movement with with the with brexit and the like similar sentiments is it the case that russia has been you know, in the same way it, it did in 2016, meddling in uh, British domestic politics uh, in favor of the, the sort of Brexit position? There, there's, there's certainly some evidence that, you know, that, that Russian-linked accounts were agitating in favor of Brexit in the run-up to the referendum. Um, and there have been, you know, question marks about about some of the funding received by some of the um, pro-leave groups, you know, it's, it's been it's been difficult to determine where some of those funds originated. Um, and I think, you know, I do think there are concerns in some quarters about the, um, you know, the, the Brexit vote. Um, but I, I think, you know, you can see across Europe, um, there are examples of Russian money being funneled to far-right nationalist movements, you know, most recently, uh, the party of Matteo Salvini in, in Italy. Um, and you know it's, it's it's certainly a cause for 
for major concern. Um, and I think also. And the by the way, so that, that funneling, you are the supposition is that's not the decision of the oligarchs or the groups. That's that's the the orders there are given ultimately by someone in the Kremlin, and 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 that's part of the partnership that that organized crime there has. Yes. Yeah, that's certainly that's certainly the model that our reporting has shown in a number of cases that there are clear links between these organized criminal gangs that are moving money. Um, in some cases, you know, um, in in direct cahoots with Kremlin officials um, who are then benefiting from the proceeds of these these laundered funds, which are being moved to to shell companies or to properties that they control overseas. Um, and, you know, funds from those same accounts are funneled then onwards to to far right groups or to, um, you know, in, in one case, in a case we looked at to uh, front man for Syrian chemical weapons um, or to to terror groups. You know, there are there, there there is a pattern of these these slush funds, you know, kind of the funds flowing through these channels, commingling. And, you know, there's, there's it's just there's, it's so hard to distinguish between the elements of that that is government linked the elements of that that's this link to organized crime because as, as as you know i think as we've all been saying um these groups are just so deeply enmeshed so you know it's certainly um it's certainly a similar issue here in europe i think the other thing i'd say just to your point about the difficulties with prosecuting um suspects in in these these russian criminal cases um that's been a major problem for the UK authorities in the, you know, in investigating some of the assassinations that we've looked at, um, you know, I think I think it's a it's a huge issue where you have uh, you have a you know a, a politically exposed Russian show up dead in London um, in suspicious circumstances, but the suspects are long gone. There's absolutely no prospect of successfully prosecuting them. I mean, as you can see in the case of the you know the suspect in the attempted hit on Sergei Skripal. Right. Um, and there's been a reluctance on the part of the authorities to pick a hugely politically problematic fight with Russia, which is essentially unwinnable because we're not going to be able to get any suspects in the dock. Um, you know, even even in the, the, the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, which was probably the most high-profile political assassination in living memory, it was not possible to bring Dmitry Kliev and Andrei Lugovoy, the two known killers, to justice. They are still wandering around freely in Russia because they were protected by the Kremlin. Um, and that is an enduring problem with trying to bring suspects in Russian criminal cases to justice. Imagine you're the leadership of England. Uh, you have plutonium in one case and nerve gas in another case. And Russia acts as if because these are Russian citizens and domestic political opponents, they can do this wherever they want. And the question is, are we going to draw lines and say you will not do that in the streets of London? One overwhelming question that is foremost in the minds of many of us here is the possibility of Russian intervention and mischief in the 2020 presidential election as there was in 2016. You hear at least certain voices saying we've done nothing virtually to protect against it and they are just redoubling their efforts and uh, fasten your seatbelts because we're going to have an even bumpier ride than we did in 2016. Any sense of whether that's the case of what we're doing? How how big a shadow this casts to a election season that really is well is already started? Dave, let me start on that with with you because I I think your um, uh, you know recent um, uh, Bogachev prosecution and the cyber crime. Um, the, the whole platform issues um, put that sort of front and center. 
Well, thank you. I, I think if we're going to draw lines and establish priorities, this would be the priority that I'd recommend that we protect our elections. We're the world's leading democracy. We need to do that for that reason. But I also think you could be a C student in political science and understand that Putin's strategy is to reconstitute the former Soviet Union, and his tactic to do that is to destroy NATO and destroy democracy. He has interfered in elections in Estonia, Georgia, all over Western Europe. He used Ukraine as a cyber playground in 2015. Anyone who was watching what he was doing in Ukraine would could not fail to understand what he was going to do here in 2016. I had a unique perspective. I couldn't talk about it much until the cases developed, but we opened the investigation in Pittsburgh into the fancy bear hack of our election, so I saw it firsthand. It is a real and present threat, and at Pitt Cyber, one of our most important pieces of work is an election security report, which takes it state-based, but not federally-based, but it takes it, the threat as a given. And I think all Western democracies have to assume that Russia is going to meddle. This threat is asymmetrical, it's multidimensional, it's, uh, it's fake news, it's, it's uh, campaigns putting group, groups against each other using the internet. It's also a threat to our voter rolls, it's a threat to our election machinery, and it is a real and present problem. And we need to do something about it. And can I, I just want to add to what Dave just said, um, how important I think the role of journalists is, journalists like Heidi, because one of the things that Putin and, and the Russian propaganda machine is excellent at and has been for, for a hundred years is, is, it, is the distribution of this, you know, actual fake news or manipulation of the news media so that the public no longer knows and can no longer figure out what's true and what's not true. Um, and the role of independent journalists in trying desperately, I think, to maintain um, some uh, some credibility to reporting so that the public can understand what's going on is, is really important. I mean, you know, there's a, a passage in Heidi's book where uh, uh, Putin talks about um, some uh, response he gave to some accusation that he was involved in one of these killings, and it was sort of a classic um, autocrats manipulation of the news media uh, the way the Soviets had been doing it long long ago and when you hear some of the things that um, uh, certain of our government officials are doing it now it's almost like they've taken a page out of Putin's playbook in terms of how to manipulate the media and therefore the public's perception of what's true and what's not true um, so that's I would add that to what Dave said Heidi, I mean, A, do you agree, and B, is it hopeless? We've just put a lot on your shoulders. Is it too much for the fourth estate to, you know, to actually execute, it seems, in its multidimensionality and just its sheer lawlessness, a very, very formidable um, force? Well, thanks so much for saying that, Martha. I think, you know, I, I think that... Um, in many ways, you know, investigative journalism is is under assault from many angles at this at this point in time. But it's also just never been it's never been a, a more important time to be doing this sort of work. And you know, I'm really privileged to work with many amazing colleagues who are just deeply engaged in the the fight to get the truth out there day in day out. And I also just have huge respect for the journalists in Russia who do this job. Um, and risk their lives every single day. Would you say, um, but do they in fact risk their lives, you'd say? Yeah. They, I mean, they do. The number of, of journalists who have, have died um, in deeply suspicious circumstances, who have been gunned down, blown up, poisoned, 
um, you know, under Putin's auspices is is just staggering. Um, it is a deeply unsafe place to be a journalist. And so I think to do this kind of work there is is an act of extraordinary courage. Um, but I, I also I wholeheartedly agree that the tactics being employed by the the Russian state under Putin amount to a, an all-out war of subversion against the West, against the liberal institutions and alliances, you know, upon which the stability of of the West depends. Um, and I think that you know, meddling in in elections in in the US and across Europe is a huge part of that strategy. The dissemination of fake news, the use of social media to sow disunity and conflict. Um, and the use of targeted assassination to go after enemies of the Russian state, opponents, journalists, critics, investigators, and wipe them out one by one and send a message that if you cross Vladimir Putin, there is not a safe place for you, you know, in, in this world. Um, and that is a terrifying thing. And so I think it is hugely important that the authorities of the West sit up, take notice and and strike back against that those attempts on so many fronts to undermine, you know, the the, the West. Wow. So first, let me say that's terrifying. Uh, you know, we, we sort of have a sense of it. We all follow it. But to see it put encapsulated uh, so well by all three of you, given your, your knowledge, uh, should give us all the shakes. Um, okay. Well, you know, what is to be done, uh, as they say, if, you know, if you were czar or czarina and could, in fact, take concrete action, to try to um, ameliorate this uh, gravest threat to the West and democratic order, what might you counsel or what might you declare? Um, I don't know. I don't fit the description of czar. My brother Jake likes to say that our personalities come from the Irish ancestors and our good looks come from the Danish ancestors. (laughs) Uh, But I do not know... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not hopeless, though, and I echo Martha's compliment to Heidi for her work and the work of the Fourth Estate. I think our greatest protection right now, sort of the the the, the wall that protects us from from totalitarianism worldwide, is the press. And I think from a law enforcement perspective and DOJ's perspective, I mean, I've already said this, but I, I do think there needs to be a return to sort of an emphasis on looking at um, Russia and and that whole regime um, uh, with more fear and skepticism and and more resources devoted to people who can can work in that area and who understand the history. I think a, a lot of it's you know s- sort of been lost. I worry about the younger generation who doesn't even remember the Soviet Union. Who, who uh, you know no one's studying Russian anymore. Nobody's. Um, gone back and looked at history and the history of some of these autocracies or oligarchies. Um, I think it's kind of critical that we shift some of our educational resources and law enforcement resources back to studying what we can do to prevent this threat because I think it's very real. Heidi, final thoughts? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think one of the depressing things for me in in researching you know, the, the book that, that I'm about to publish and and working on this for many years now has just been looking at the way in which every time um, you know another another threat emerged from Russia, every time another dead body turned up in London in increasingly shocking circumstances. You know, even after the death of Alexander Litvinenko, which was a nuclear attack in the heart of the British capital, even after and you know the first nerve attack on European soil 
um, since the Second World War with the attack on the Skripals. The West has continued to kind of say, well, but we do need to be able to work with Russia on Syria or on Iran or, you know, we're dependent on Russian energy supplies or there's a number of reasons why maybe we should just continue to half look the other way. And I think it I think that the price of that kind of appeasement is is becoming it has been for many, many years actually too steep. Um, so I think the deaths of the many critics of the Kremlin who have, you know, who have, who have been mown down in the, um, in the West over the past 15 years need to be properly and fully investigated. And those investigations should be open to the public. Um, and, and yeah, I think that um, the threat to Western democracies needs to be taken incredibly seriously. Whoa. So that's a very uh, informative and sobering, I would say, uh, 45 minutes. Thank you very much to Dave, Martha, and Heidi uh, for being here. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer, production assistance by Sarah Philippoum, transcripts by Matthew Flanagan, research assistance by Sam Trachtenberg. Today's episode was recorded by Natalie Jones. Thanks as always to the incredible Philip Glass who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.